Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. It is Monday, February 26th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm speaking today with diplomatic correspondent Laser Berman. Laser, how are you? I am well. How are you? I'm okay. We are at day 143 of the war. The IDF presented a plan to the war cabinet on Sunday evening for the evacuation of Palestinian civilians from combat zones in Rafah and Gaza and an operational strategy going forward. We'll probably hear a little bit more about aspects of that from Laser. We also heard that Corporal Ori Megadish, who was kidnapped by Hamas on October 7th and later was one of the few rescues by special forces from captivity in Gaza, will return to army service today, something of her choosing. She'll now be serving in the military intelligence unit as she was an observation soldier at the Nahal Oz post. Meanwhile, this morning, uh, Minister Gidon Saar commented on Israeli radio that the framework agreement reached in Paris last week for a temporary truce and hostage release fits within Israel's parameters, but still waiting for a response on that from Hamas. We'll talk about the ongoing hostage talks and what is happening on the ground in Gaza, all of that after a quick break. The Technion Israel Institute of Technology is where some of Israel's brightest minds ask the biggest question of all. What if? What if they could take on the world's biggest challenges? What if they could develop life-changing environmental, scientific, health, medical, and technological discoveries that will make a huge impact on Israel and the planet? But they don't just ask the question, they answer it too. They turn those ideas into reality. They make them happen. To see just some of the incredible things they've achieved, get the Technion Booklet of Wonders at ats.org wonders. We hope it inspires you to give them your support so they can keep doing what they do best. The American Technion Society. World-changing discoveries by Israel's brightest minds made possible by you. So, laser turning to the hostage talks. We're seeing that Israel is sending a delegation to these ongoing talks in Qatar, which are expected to begin today. Uh, there were talks in Paris over the weekend. What can you tell us from the diplomatic point of view here? What are we seeing and what are you gaining from what you're hearing and seeing and reading? So, there's certainly movement uh, toward a deal. Um, that doesn't mean a deal is inevitable. That doesn't mean a deal is going to happen. But if you compare it to where we were, let's say, a week ago and going back a couple of weeks, there's definitely a lot of positive movement. The fact that uh, Netanyahu decided to send his top negotiators to Paris was a sign that um, there was what to talk about. There was a, It's a sign that Israel was happy from the, the reports they've heard from Qatar and Egypt about Hamas being willing uh, to be much more flexible. Let's not forget that Netanyahu called Hamas's demands uh, very recently, delusional, and said there was no point in continuing to send negotiators to talk about it. So they were there on Friday in Paris, came back very early Saturday morning. On Saturday night, there was a phone uh, meeting where they updated the war cabinet about what they had heard in Paris. And based on that, Netanyahu decided there was enough to go on to send uh, negotiators to Doha in Qatar. 
Now, that's kind of on the uh, positive side, if you want to say, you know, a deal is a net positive. On the other hand, um, the negotiators who were sent to Doha are not Mossad chief um, Dedi Barnea, it wasn't um, Ronan Bar, the head of the Shin Bet. It wasn't the top negotiators, it was a lower level, kind of to work on the more technical aspects of it. There's also reports that Netanyahu is toughening his positions. He's saying, well, we need to have a list of which hostages are alive first. And that if any terrorists, convicted terrorists with blood on their hands are released, they have to be expelled probably to Qatar. So there's, and then there's also rumors that Netanyahu, or there's kind of whispers that Netanyahu is trying himself to um, scupper a deal to make sure it doesn't happen because it would put him in danger with the right flank of his uh, coalition. Smotrich has already said that if the deal looks like the reports, then he would vote against it. Again, right. these are just kind of anonymous rumors. In terms of the outline, what we're talking about, and this is not that different than what we've heard in, in recent weeks, Hamas would release about 40 hostages, women, children, uh, elderly, the ill, and maybe some female soldiers. The big gain that they would get is a six-week pause in the fighting. Um, they want there to be talks immediately uh, at the start of the six weeks about a permanent ceasefire. Obviously, they want this war to stop. They want their survival to be ensured. There's also the issue of the Palestinian prisoners. The question is whether it's going to be something like one Israeli hostage for every three Palestinian prisoners, like it was last year, in late November. It'll, I think there's there's no way of avoiding it. It'll be more. The, the, the demands have gone up. But it's probably not going to be, you know, thousands like Hamas was talking about uh, reportedly earlier. So it'll be something less, but it'll still be a significant number. And the big question is how many of these prisoners that are released are hardcore terrorists with blood on their hands that are ser- serving multiple life sentences. Going back to what you said, that it's lower level negotiators who are being sent to Qatar uh, to work out the logistics. So I presume that you are saying that because we're not close to the actual formalization of the deal, but I would imagine obviously that's part of the negotiation process. You need people to go there and really work out, iron out all the various details before someone people are citing on the dotted line. Yeah, I don't think we're about we're about to close a deal. Um, there's still a lot to be done, and let's not forget that these are indirect negotiations. So when Israel is there negotiating, there's no Hamas there. Uh, all this has to go back to Hamas. There's also the question of whether Yichia Sinwar is able to approve these things, how whether he's in touch, whether it takes a few days for him to actually get this information and approve it, there's a pace here. But we see that things are slowly building, um, that there's a desire to get this done. Certainly on the Israeli side, there's depends what the terms are, but this is an opportunity to get dozens of hostages out. We know that we continue to hear about hostages that have been killed um, in captivity, the, the pressure is there. There's also those demonstrations that we had in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, which are kind of growing in pitch, and there's more of an anti-BB tone to them. So these are all reasons to get it done. In addition to the fact we have Ramadan coming up in about two weeks, and right. that makes everything harder. There's just more tension in the air. There's always tension for some sort of uh, blow up over the Temple Mount. So this is really the window to make it happen. And uh, you know, you see this this positive momentum that's slowly building uh, in the direction of a deal. Okay, you were in Gaza last week and yesterday. We're going to talk about that after we take another quick break. I got married this Monday in the middle of a war. 
You are not a soldier anymore. You are 50 years old. What is the matter with you? It's like a couple of kilometers from here. Like my friend has a 4x4. Let's just go cut across the fields and go get him. Israel Stories Wartime Diaries. Voices that try to capture slivers of life right now. And he told me, take with you a sleeping bag and a tent <laughs> and just go. I texted him on, like after I was told that he was killed. From their eyes, I was a traitor. Everybody needs their like blankie, their teddy bear, something to make them feel safe. I'm just another grandfather looking after his grandchild while his son is off at war. These children of Hamas now will be the killer of my children. I desperately wanted to talk about sex during my eulogy for Ido. Everyone has to choose to be optimistic because we don't have room for pessimism. Check out Israel's story wherever you get your podcasts. So you've already written your thoughts about what is happening in terms of the ground offensive in Gaza after you were there last week. Pretty damning what you wrote, that none of Netanyahu's war aims have been achieved. That was one of the comments that you made. But obviously, I'd just like you to sort of take us through what you were doing there, what you saw, and what you've come away with now after your second time in. Sure. So I wouldn't say it was, I don't think it was especially damning. I mean, certainly, I think it's important to note that uh, none of Israel's, I won't only say they're Netanyahu's, they're Israel's war aims, the reasonable war aims. Um, I think it's important to note that they haven't been met, but it's reasonable that they haven't been met. Okay. What I was more critical of was, given that they haven't been met, uh, the IDF war is dwindling down to an just a, basically a medium-sized operation or a big operation. There's mm-hmm. no more reserve brigades in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Hamas is returning to places where Israel has already conquered. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so given that, why are we kind of winding down the pace of the offensive. And I think it wasn't aggressive and fast enough at the beginning. That's why we still haven't gone into Rafah, which is obviously a strategic site. It's on the border. I think that should have been done in parallel with Gaza City. Um, You know, two major um, movements into the Gaza Strip in parallel, putting Hamas in a real dilemma. That would have made a lot more sense. So that's what I'm critical of. I was curious to see what is going on on the ground in the central in, in, in Gaza Strip? Because we see that there is still Hamas presence, there's still attacks, there's still fight, fatalities, and there's still serious operations there. So last week, I was in the Nitzarim Corridor. It's a place I had been before. I was there with uh, 646, which is the paratroop brigade of the Southern Command. Um, and then it was handed over to the active army, the Nachal Brigade. I was there with the Battalion 931. And then I was there in the same, I went through the same entrance into the Gaza Strip that then turned north uh, where I was with Givati's Sabar Battalion. And they are part of an, kind of a week-long operation in the Zaytun neighborhood to continue damaging infrastructure, kill terrorists, and the like. Uh, these are places that have been captured. They were kind of the, in the first phase of the offensive where there was uh, three divisions operating in Gaza City. This was all captured. Now, officers in the field say, yeah, it makes sense that we haven't gotten to everything yet because when we captured it the first time, the idea was just to open up the way to Gaza City so we could operate inside of Gaza City and attack strategic sites there. And now we're really cleaning up there. They talk about having full operational command, meaning they're able to, first of all, bring in journalists, but they're right. also able to to dig for tunnels um, and to, to work much more slowly um, and more comprehensively. But at the same time, you see that they're not able to... Here's my big fear, right? So the fact that when we're in there, we do have control. 
right? But the right. question is, okay, are we going going to just keep this? What does this situation lead to if we don't bring in um, another? civil authority to run the Gaza Strip, then it's basically going to head toward the security zone in southern Lebanon, where we have troops and we try to have some sort of weak administration with locals. But we're there and we're taking casualties and we're fighting and it's kind of this cat and mouse game. And we know that the local guerrillas have much more uh, stamina than we do, because that's where they live and they don't mind dying. And there's a political price to having soldiers in there dying when there's not real movement. So that's what we have to avoid. And it's still not clear to me how we avoid that. It still seems to be kind of heading that direction unless we do the big operation in Rafah and we bring someone else in to rule the Gaza Strip. There's talks about, you know, kind of a pilot program in the north with some locals. Uh, no one, no one they talked to on the ground, at least from the soldiers, seemed to know much about that. So it doesn't mean it's not happening, but it means it's not uh, any major breakthrough. Um, so those are still questions that concern me. Laser, could you give us a sense of what things look like? Uh, you know, obviously this has been months of reading, following it, and I think there's a real desire to understand what is it like when you go in there. It's. it's pretty calm. I mean, maybe I, I'm probably calmer than most people because I fought uh, in this war and I've been in a few times otherwise, and I think I'm a pretty calm person anyway. You see, there, the sol- there's not this stress, you know, kind of in the height of a war right now. Um, the soldiers are comfortable. They're fairly relaxed. Um, doesn't mean they're, you know, not operating, but you don't see any signs of stress. Everything seems very much, I would sum it up, as under control. The fact that the head of a battalion is able to walk around with reporters for a couple of hours, you know, everything looks put together. It's not like it, things are clean and orderly. Almost every building is damaged, and there's just broken pieces of building and cars all over the place. But the house that he was in is very kind of put together, orderly. Things seem to be functioning, full IDF control, right? When they decide to go somewhere, they go somewhere. There's also, I think significantly, there's a lot of construction work going on, engineering work in terms of taking the muddy routes into Gaza and turning them into much more uh, regular roads. So there's a lot of that type of bulldozers doing that, which shows how long the IDF intends to stay there and that they want to have these roads and they feel comfortable enough. uh, These uh, vehicles are not armored, right? They're just kind of big bulldozers. So how much um, control... The IDF has there, and you go up on top of a building, you look around, you see IDF vehicles going every which way. Almost you don't feel the presence of Hamas. You know that Hamas is there. There's cells here and there. It doesn't seem like it's anything too organized. You also don't really see any civilians. They're, they're kind of deeper into Gaza City in the neighborhoods. So you really see a lot of IDF control, IDF presence, and very slow, f- kind of careful work. So on the tactical level, wonderful. But again, where is this leading? Where does this go from here? How do we get to... What's the, what's the, um, how does this turn into that victory, those war aims? How does, how does, when do we know that Hamas's military capabilities have destroyed? When do we know that their governing capabilities have been destroyed? As of now, if we pull out, Hamas comes back. So how do, how do we get there? And I think the only way to get there, because we can keep killing Hamas for, for years and there'll be new ones. Uh, the only way to get there is to actively bring someone else in with Arab support, with American support. And they start ruling the Gaza Strip while Hamas is underground. What will your follow-up piece be about, given the fact that you were there yesterday? I think give a reality on the ground, what it looks like in these places that we've captured and the IDF is still operating there, what the humanitarian situation is like. It's always good to also give kind of a a feeling of of what it looks like on the ground, what it smells like, what the soldiers 
uh, are talking about. So there'll be some of that as well. But in general, what it's like in these places that we know the IDF is still operating, there's still casualties, but didn't we take it, you know, a couple months ago? So what does that mean? Um, that's a big question. And the Northern Gaza Strip, we see in headlines that this is the place where there's going to be a pilot. This is the place where uh, we have to get humanitarian aid. This could be where a lot of the refugees from Rafah get pushed north. Uh, all of those questions, I think, are very relevant and are unanswered. Okay. Laser, thank you. It has been good to hear what you have to say today. Thank you. Thank you all for listening as well to this Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. We'll be back again tomorrow with another installment. If you have comments about this or other episodes, always feel free to drop us an email, podcast at timesofisrael.com. And of course, always feel free to recommend us to listeners wherever you find your podcasts. Until next time, take care and have a good week. 